All right. You know, um, we sing a great hymn in this church from time to time. It's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a beautiful song that encourages believers to stay encouraged and focused on the only life giver is our Lord Jesus Christ. The first stanza of that song says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I like the way the writer of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews 12 too. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in, in um, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. What do all these songs and, and Scripture have in common? It is to turn our spiritual eyes off the world and to fix our intention and our eternity on the things of God, to fix our attention on Christ. If we have been born again, if we have been born from above, if we truly desire the things of God, then we need to seek and live by those eternal things. That's what we need to do. However, there's a problem. And the problem is this. We are way too earthly focused. We are way too earthly focused. You know, in Luke 12, in verses 16 to 21, our Lord tells us a parable about a guy who's doing really, really, really well. He's a farmer. And he has an overabundance of crops. And he looks out on all of his crops. He looks out on all of his fields. And he makes a statement. And that statement is, what shall I do? Have so much stuff. So profitable. What should I do? And he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the current barns that I have, and I'm going to build new barns so that when I harvest all this good crop, I'm going to store it in a new barn building, and I'm going to look at myself and say, Self, you have done well. And I'm going to sit back and I am going to eat, drink, and I'm going to be merry. I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labors. Now, for most of us, you say, what's wrong with that? 
What's wrong with that? Isn't that the goal? We want to get to a place in our life where we're going to retire, where whatever we've put away for a rainy day is going to be the thing that's going to sustain us until such time that we expire. But the Lord tells this parable for a reason. This man had all of his confidence, all of his trust, everything in what he had produced. And consequently, none of his life was oriented toward God. As a matter of fact, this parable ends in verses 20 and 21 of Luke 12, where the Lord gives the meaning of the parable. And he says this, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Our Lord ends that passage in Luke 12, 34 with this statement. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that is the problem today. That is the problem. Too many Christians have their treasures on earth and are so concerned about the things of this world that the things of God become secondary to them. There's always another priority. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry I had to do this. Oh, I'm sorry I had to do that. And let me tell you something. It's not about merely attendance or doing things. That's not what it's about. It's about applying 99% of our energies and our efforts into temporal things or the things of this life. And that's the problem. We sow and we seek and we pursue and we store treasure on earth. Treasure on earth. We guard it, we protect it, we nurture it, we invest it, all to the detriment, all to the detriment of building spiritual treasure. And our culture is constantly feeding us this narrative. It's a nonstop narrative. You need more. You need bigger. You need better. Look at the latest and greatest. You have to have this. Oh, by having this, you're going to become much more fulfilled person. It's a constant narrative of lies. Lies that are being fed day in, day out, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Listen, the media... The media spreads lies daily. It's down to the point you don't know who you can trust from a news source. The government, our government, lies perpetually to the people of this nation, continually to the people of this nation, that most people have lost confidence, have lost faith in the government and in the political system. I mean, how many times you say, oh, this guy's running, that one's running, whatever, and they go, ah, they're all, a, they're all a bunch of liars. They're cut from the same cloth, right? This is part of this machine that's constantly, 
constantly pushing out lies. And then there's the covetedness and the materialism and the consumerism of our culture. Right? We're now in the Christmas rush. Right? So the Christmas rush. It's about Christ, right? It's about the birth of the Savior, right? It's about the coming King. It's about Emmanuel, God with us, right? No. Now comes the crush. Buy this. Get that. You need this. You need that. Oh boy, this gizmo, this gadget, this widget is going to make you so happy. It's going to make your whole life fulfilled. I was listening the other day to a commercial of a product. And I was very interested in what they were saying the product is and what the product is going to bring. And it was talking about how the product is going to enable your digital fantasies, right? Everything you want to do from a digital perspective, how it's, it's all going to come through, and you've got you to gotta get this product. How do they advertise a car? How do they advertise an iPhone? Oh, the iPhone 15 with titanium. Oh, there's a game changer for me. It has titanium, right? And they do all the nice colors and they show all the nice things and all the capabilities. And it's like, I got to get this new iPhone because it has titanium in it. How do they advertise or market a car? Same thing. The beautiful person, whether it's a male or a female, driving the car very fast, going through mountain roads up and down, going through creeks and rivers, and you see it and you go, oh my goodness, this car is so cool, and it's, it's got all this electronics, and they show you it streaming down the street, and you go, oh boy, that looks like a car I need to have. My favorite are the drug commercials, which are never-ending, by the way, Right? And they, they, they have even invented diseases that the drugs cure. So big farmers out there pushing drug commercials and telling you this pill is going to make your life so much better. Take this pill. Take this particular drug. Take this injection because it's going to change everything about your life. You're going to become so much better. You need it. Even though during the commercial they tell you the side effects and this drug may cause frankfurt of fingers and may cause you to kill yourself and everything. And everybody goes, oh, well, forget that. I, you know, I don't want to kill myself. I need this drug. We're being lied to, folks. And I want to share something with you. All of these lies come from the pit of hell. All of these lies are designed to keep your eyes focused on this world so that your eyes would not be focused on the things of eternity, that your eyes would not be focused on Christ. That's what it's designed to do. I don't care how you slice it. It's all the same thing. We started with that hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face. And notice the next line. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. There's a problem. The problem is this. The things of earth have not grown dim. dim. They've grown brighter. The things of earth are captivating the souls of believers, and believers are saying, I want the things of earth, and I want it more than the things of Christ. And that's not how it's supposed to be. And when that takes place in our lives, then we're amiss. We're wrong. Then our worries become the things of this world and not the things of Christ. And if we're ever going to be the people of God that God has intended us to be, then we need to be people that keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Listen, we don't have two lives. Let's put an end to that right now. We don't have a spiritual life and a professional life or a spiritual life and a secular life. And that's the way most people treat things. They treat things like I have two lives. Well, you know, I go to work every day and my commitment is to my job or to my profession and everything else. And then, oh, by the way, on Tuesday night I may go on Bible study or on Sunday I might go to church. And when we come with that approach, I'm going to tell you what invariably happens. What happens is this. The things of Christ are de-emphasized. And the things of your professional, secular life are emphasized. They're weightier. We consider them more important. And the things of Christ we consider less important. Now, I'm going to share something. What inevitably happens with that is compromise. We will compromise the things of Christ for the things of this world. And so what I've entitled this message is Seeking the Things Above. Seeking the Things Above. And for our text, we're going to be using Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to invite you to look at with me at verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3. 1 through 4. And before we go there, I want to share this with you. You know, we've been studying on Tuesday night the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And in Matthew 6.33, the Lord Jesus makes this statement, right? After he tells the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about it. Hey, Look at the birds of the field, how God prepares for them, right? They don't toil, they don't weep, uh, reap, they don't sow, they don't work for what they have. And at the end of that, climactically in verse 33 of chapter 6 of Matthew, our Lord says this, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, 
And all these things shall be added unto you. What are the things? Well, it's all the worries of life that Jesus had just spoken about previously. He said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else is going to be added unto you. Now, I have a question for you. Do you think Jesus was lying? Do you think that he was using hyperbole? You know, oh, I'm just going to make a big... Do you think he was speaking metaphorically? Well, you know, it's a nice ideal. It's a good ethic to have. Give it a shot, pal. I know, I know that the Lord was speaking literally. That we are to seek first the kingdom of God. Stop right there. Seek first the kingdom of God. What does first mean? It means first. It means priority. The priority in the believer's life is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. There's the first truth in that verse. There it is. The orientation of your life, if you call yourself a believer, is Christ and Christ's righteousness. Now that's the first truth. That truth comes with a promise. What's the promise? And all these things, the worries of life, the food, the clothing, the shelter, the income, all these things shall be added unto you. And I want you to think about that as we approach how Paul tells the church at Colossae. You know, the Lord also said this, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? You know, my dad, I've, I've said this before and I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. On his deathbed, what my father told me was this, be faithful to the call that the Lord has put upon your heart because on that great day, speaking of judgment day, you're going to be judged by faithfulness. And he went on to add, not by how many people you've had in your church, not by how many sermons you preached, not by how many numbers of this or that, but by faithfulness. If God calls you to one, be faithful to one. If he calls you to ten, be faithful to ten. If he calls you to a hundred, be faithful to a hundred. On that great day, only what's done for Christ is going to last. So our Lord Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. That's why. Because on that great day, only what's done for Christ will last. So let's look at our text today found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it through and then we'll go through the, uh, the text verse by verse. Colossians 3, 1. If you then have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, 
then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, I want to give you a little, a little information first regarding the epistle to the Colossians. The epistle to the Colossians is about two things, two things in particular. Number one, it is about the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Christ is sufficient in everything. The second thing that it is about is the supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme over everything. Right? So you have Christ is sufficient in everything, not just in spiritual matters, but in physical matters. But you also have Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent. Christ is the most important thing. Christ comes before all things in all matters. Those are the two things that the epistle to the Colossians is about. And if you look at the epistle to the Colossians, if you look at 128, chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writes this, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete. What is he saying? My goal as an apostle is to proclaim Christ. It is to proclaim Christ to every man, to every believer, so that every believer, every man is complete in Christ. By the way, that's the verse we've chosen for our church. Colossians 1.28. It is what we believe that this ministry should be, that we're presenting people complete in Christ. If you go to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this concerning the supremacy of Christ. He says, For in Him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. You are sufficient in the supreme Christ. That's what he's saying. You don't lack anything. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have no want. If you are in Jesus Christ, you do not lack anything because in Christ you are made complete. And he talks about his supremacy at the end of that verse. And he says, he is the head over all rule and authority. Christ is not only sufficient, but Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme. And then if you go further in chapter 3, verse 12, he tells us and he encourages us as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So we see here in Colossians is that Paul is talking about Christ's sufficiency and Christ's supremacy. If we go back to chapter 3 verses verse 1, we read 
If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, Christ's death and resurrection is the liberating power. It is the liberating power of all who have come to repentance and faith in Christ. Christ's sacrifice on the cross not only has the power to free us from the penalty of sin, but it has the power to free us from the power of sin, and it will ultimately free us from the presence of sin. Now what I say, I say to those that are believers in Jesus Christ, those who have come to Christ in repentance and faith and are living their lives daily according to the Word of God. This is what we're talking about. Now Paul here in verse 1 begins with the word if. And that word if is better translated in English as the word since. So if you read it, since then, clearly writing to believers, since then, you have been raised up with Christ. You've been raised up with Christ. You have been born again. You have been saved. Right? There's an assumption here. Since you have been saved, now comes the directive. What's the directive? Keep seeking the things above. If you're born again, detach yourself from this life. Detach yourself from this world. If you are born again, keep seeking the things above. Very similar to what the Lord said in Matthew 6.33, right? Keep seeking the kingdom of God in His righteousness. And there's a very famous saying that's used derogatorily of Christians. You probably have heard this, right? You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You've heard that, right? That means you're so consumed with God. You're so religious, you know. But I'll tell you what's happening in many churches today. Many churches, people who profess Jesus Christ are so earthly-minded, they're of no heavenly good. So they become consumed. They become married to this life and to this world. And the truth of the matter is, if we want to really, truly reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what we need to do? We need to die to this world. That's what we need to do. We need to die to this world. We need to die to the affections of this world. And let me share something with you. The strategy of the enemy and everything else is very, very subtle. Right? The strategy of the enemy is going to tell you things like, if you don't do this, that person's not going to understand, and, and you're going to isolate a relationship. So the strategy of the enemy is always to get you to compromise, 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 until such time that he just gets you entirely. If we want to reach people for Christ, we have to die to this world. We have to die a death to this world. 
We cannot be attracted to this world and continue to live for this world and think like this world and behave like this world if we want to reach the world for Christ. Hey, think about it. Think about it for one moment. In the gospel accounts, the people who were attracted to Jesus, were they attracted to Jesus because he looked, spoke, sounded like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus preaching and the people going, who is this that speaks to us with such authority? Not like the scribes and Pharisees. And the prevalent thinking today is you got to look like the world, you got to sound like the world, you got to act like the world, you got to dress like the world in order to attract the world. And that is something that's far from the truth. You want holiness to be seen, not compromise. You want passion for Christ to be the hallmark of your life, not deadness and indifference to the things of God. You want to walk and talk and breathe like a Christian. Not like another worldling. The other worldlings will look at you and say, you profess Christ, but you sound like me, you do the exact same thing to me. You're a hypocrite. They love that world word, don't they? Listen, the Apostle Paul put it this way, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What was the Apostle Paul saying? He goes, hey, I'm dead to this world. I have been crucified to the world. I've taken this world with all of its lust and everything else, and I've crucified it. I laid myself down. Yeah, I'm alive, but what is alive is not me, but Christ that liveth in me. In Galatians 6.14, he says this, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There it is. I live. It's only Christ in me that lives. And what did Paul go on to say later on? For me to live is to die. Right? To die is to gain. But to live is Christ. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him. That's his objective of his life. That I may know Him, and he takes it a step further. And the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, that I would even be conformed even unto His death. And God gave him that wish. All that is in the world, all the empty deception. All that the world has to offer people that is not of Christ, that's designed to take one captive. That's the truth. And all the teaching that is not of Christ is empty deceptions. Listen, Paul says right here that believers have died. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking, keep Seeking the things above where Christ is 
seated at the right hand of God. Time comes for us to ask ourselves, are we seeking the things above? Paul's word here used keep seeking in the Greek is what's called the present imperative active tense. Simply put, it means this. Number one, it's a verb. It's an action word, right? Number two, present means that it reflects a continual seeking. So it's not to seek, it's a continual. So it's keep seeking. An imperative is a command. So here it is. Here's the directive. Continue. You are to non-stop. You are to continually seek the things that are above. That means we don't have a secular life and a spiritual life. We don't have two lives. We have one. And as the poet C.T. Studd said, only one life so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ shall last. Look at verse 2. Here we see the action, the action of our calling. By the way, I forgot to mention to you that verse 1 was the assurance of our calling. Verse 2 is the action of our calling. And in this calling, there is a positive charge and a negative charge. A charge meaning a command, something that has been given. Let's look at the positive. This verse contains both, right? Set your minds on things above. Set your minds on things above. Again, the verb is one of continual action. It is an imperative. It is a command. It's a pattern of thinking and reconciling oneself to action. It is a constant thought process, meaning your mind is constantly going. This is the direction of your life, a continually reconciling the fact that I am going to seek that which is above, that I am going to be heavenly minded. And so that your your spiritual disposition is constantly examining and making spiritual decisions based on the data you receive. What's the data? It's the Word of God. That's the data. The input of the Word of God causes your life to perpetually seek the things of God. And so with this mind, believers... Set your mind on the things above. Lock it in. Tune it in. Establish it there. Now, what are the things above? That's the easy question, right? What are the things above? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Listen, our Lord Jesus Christ said this in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be. Some of the most profound Christians I've ever have met in my life have had the least in terms of this world. 
least in terms of education, least in terms of material possessions, least in terms of accolades from other men and women. So the positive charge is what? The positive charge is to set our mind on the things of earth. Now here comes the negative charge. Not on the things of earth. Not of the things that are on earth. Believers are not, they are not, they are not, we are not to set our minds on such things. Paul starkly contrasts the heavenly spiritual things versus the earthly things. And while seeking the the things above is a continual action, it's something that we're perpetually doing, the things of earth are to be stopped. Now you might be saying, Mark, are you serious with this? Do you want me to be like uh, a monk? It's not what the Word of God calls for. It's not what the Word of God commands. You're still to be responsible. You're still to be employed. You're still to provide for your family. You're still a responsible human being. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. There's a profound difference between the two. So you have all of your natural responsibilities and you're to care for your natural responsibilities but you are not to be consumed with this world and that's what he's talking about here in verses one through four so we see the action of our calling is both continual it's continual to set your mind and it's continual to stop the things of the world from influencing us. And now we look at verse 3, which is the answer to our calling. Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And I really wish I had more time to process this. There's a, there's a theological charge given in verse 3 right here. Paul answers our calling here by pointing out the theology of our calling. The believer has died in Christ and is hidden in Christ. And this is a glorious truth. Why are believers to seek the things above the kingdom of God and His righteousness? The things of the heavenly realm. Things of the Spirit. Why? The answer is simple. Because the believer has died to the world and the things of this life and finds their life in Christ. That's the whole purpose. In what sense has the believer died? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sin on the cross. What were Christ's final words on the cross? It is finished. The debt had been paid. Christ paid the penalty for the believer's sin. And he paid it in full. And it is the sin of all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ who have come by the way of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Their sins and their sins alone were atoned for on the cross of Calvary. But there's something more glorious here. If you look at the verse, 
in addition, the believer's life is hidden in Christ. This is, this is such a spectacular truth. I could preach our whole sermon on what does it mean to be hidden in Christ. But in short, the believer's life is concealed from the world. The unsaved world cannot understand the believer. They cannot understand the believer. And they cannot understand the willingness to participate, their unwillingness to participate in the sin and in the excess of this world. And consequently, the believer's life is hidden in Christ and is protected from spiritual foes. You know what Satan wants to do with every person who professed Jesus Christ? You got to know this, because this may help you in your battle with sin. You know what Satan ultimately would like to do? Satan would ultimately like to kill you spiritually. That's what he wants. He knows he's going to hell. He wants to just take everybody else to hell with him. So he wants to kill you, but he can't if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because your life is hidden in Christ. We're protected from that spiritual foe. So knowing that he can't damn our souls to hell, what is the second best thing to do? It is to render every believer spiritually weak, spiritually impotent, so that the gospel cannot go through the world, so that you cannot testify with authority and the unction of the Holy Spirit about the gospel to other people. Now, in order to do that, he's not going to jump out from behind a rock and go, Bleh! What's a better way that he does it? Render you useless. Take your eyes that should be focused on Christ, Focus on things above and get you now to focus on the things of this world. You hear me talk about them all the time. The shiny objects. The things that catch our attention and distract us. That's what he wants to do. He'll force compromise in your life. The rationalization. Well, is it a sin to do this? Is it a sin to do that? By the way, that, that's probably one of the most dangerous questions. Because all that says is, how close can I get to the line without crossing over? He wants to render you useless. He wants to render the church impotent. And let me tell you something, he's making great strides because more and more Christians are availing themselves and entrusting themselves to the things of the world and pay little, little attention to the things of God. Oh, I thank God that my life is hidden in Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says this. I think this is a great truth. Hence also He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Our Lord makes intercession for the saints. Do you know that Jesus is proactive? Do you know that? 
The Bible talks about he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not kicking back with a remote in his hand watching heavenly TV. Our Lord Jesus Christ is proactive. He's an intercessor. He's praying for his saints. He's praying that you're going to persevere. He's praying that you're going to be obedient. He's praying for the glory of God to descend. I like to think that the Lord God is praying for us even as we meet right now. That the word of truth would go forth in authority. The word of truth would go forth in power. And that lives would be changed. Listen, if our lives aren't being changed by the word of God, we should pack up now and go home. That's just the truth. And I pray that God is changing lives through the word of God. Lastly, let me give you the fourth one. Here's the awesomeness of our calling in verse number four. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. How awesome is this? Here's the awesomeness of our calling. When Christ comes in all of his glory, we will be revealed with him. The apostle John captures this so beautifully in 1 John 3, 2. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 3, 2. I want you to see this. Underline this verse. Circle it. Put asterisks next to it. 1 John 3, 2. This is the hope of encouragement. This is why we persevere. This is why we keep moving forward. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it is not yet appeared as what we shall be. And we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. If that does not shoot a shot of adrenaline right up your spine into your heart, something is inherently wrong. When God appears, when Christ appears, the believers in Christ will appear with them. We are hidden in Christ now. But when Christ comes, we will be revealed. And we will be revealed. And we will see Christ just as He is. On that day, the world's glory, the pleasures, the lust of this world will all disappear. All of its trophies, all of its achievement, all of the cheers of the crowd, all of the finances and awards, all of the temporary pleasures of life will pass away and Christ and Christ only shall receive all of the glory and honor and the believers of all time will be there to sing hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Although believers' lives are hidden in Christ, when Christ is revealed, believers will be revealed with Him. Now I ask, what does the world have today that can top that. Nothing. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul shows us and he urges the church, 
to pursue a heavenly life. And this is relevant today. Why? Because there's more distractions today than I think than ever before. Many in the church who live divided lives and one Christian, one secular. Many in the church today even frown upon a committed life of holiness and, and dedication. You hear it. You hear it. Don't you hear it? When they say, lighten up. You need to lighten up. Or they say, you have to relax. You don't have to be in church all the time. Unfortunately, many will realize that they're not in Christ on that great day. That partial love for Jesus did not result in complete salvation and eternity with Him. What believers need is to say, uh, is, to, is not less of Christ. I want to make that point. What we, we don't need less of Christ. We need more of Christ. And less of the world. Partial obedience and persistent self-pleasure and self-agenda doesn't result in salvation. That's what the Bible calls an unbeliever. It is a sign of life outside of Christ. And I pray with all my heart that no one here will find themselves ever in that situation on that great day. So I call, I call on the church for all of us to repent of our sins, to turn to Christ, to change the thinking in our mind and continue to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, to set our affections and our thoughts and our object on Him and Him alone, to lay down our secret sins and lay down our pleasures, Cry out to God to be merciful and to save us. So the question all becomes for each of us, will we continue to trust ourselves stubbornly and perhaps some past decision that result in, 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 in not a love for Christ and His church and for His glory? Are we going to continue to do that? Or are we going to desire Christ? I pray that we will turn our hearts to Christ now. That we will stop the nonsense. Time is so short. I don't know if you realize that, but time is short. Jesus is coming. Let me tell you something. Jesus is coming. All you have to do is look at the sign of the times. Jesus is coming. The apparatus is already in place. We're not waiting for anything else. It's already in place. Old pastor used to say that Gabriel's polishing up the trumpet and he's doing his trumpet lessons out somewhere in the annals of heaven, waiting for the command of the Lord to say, blow the trumpet and the archangels are going to shout and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and we which shall remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. That's around the corner. What will our decision be? That's what matters. Let's pray.